But while we're, I'm getting situated here and trying to get organized, turn to Romans chapter 9. Glad to welcome everyone. Uh, Deanna's father, mother, brother, and sister. Is that right? That's okay. And the ones that's online, we welcome you guys. And I've got two dear families that may be watching tonight that I want to give a shout out to. One of them lives in Michigan. One of them lives in Florida. Linda and Stu, if you're listening. Diane and John, if you're listening, hello. And uh, that's my nieces, by the way, that's been up with me for so long. And Melinda's not getting organ gotten, gotten organized yet at home. Her husband is just now recognizing who she is. But I don't know what to title this message to, or some or subject tonight. Now everybody says I'm preaching. I'm not preaching. It's going to be a lesson. I am not a preacher. I don't feel real comfortable up here behind the pulpit. But the Lord is with us, and, and He'll do what He'll do through me. Now, Romans is the definitive uh, doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ by salvation. Now, if you can, let your mind go back to Paul's day. Now, if you are saved by grace, then the question comes up, I better get my glasses or I can't see. What about Israel? And I can entitle this tonight, maybe, Replacement Theology. Now, you've heard the pastor run that question by you a time or two. I've heard him, what is replacement theology? And replacement the and I'm going to explain that to you shortly. Now, we're not going to get through what I'm going to be talking about. We won't even get close to being through it. Maybe I can open up enough curiosity to get you right confused, and it, it will bring more questions. But if you say, but grace, now remember in, in, in Israel's days, you had to be circumcised, so, that, so they thought, to have salvation, and had to do a lot of other things. And if you're saved by grace, then what about Israel? And Paul's great discourse in Romans 9, 10, 11, Paul takes three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, to answer that question. Chapter 9 is Roman or Israel in the past. Chapter 10 is Romans, or I keep saying Romans, Israel in the present. Chapter 11 is Israel in the future. And he answers all these questions, and, and, and he, he deals with the question, who is Israel? Why are they presently blinded and set aside for a while? Now, now the question is, when were they blinded? Is God dealing with Israel right now as a nation? And the answer is no. Is that a permanent thing? And the answer there is again no. But when does all this take place? Now, as we get to introduction to what's going on. Chapter 8 disclosed with a lot of spiritual things. Uh, if God is so faithful to his word as portrayed in Romans 8, none can be condemned and none can be separated from him. And, and then why have the Israelites who were sovereignly chosen and given unconditional promises completely failed and been set aside and been rejected? Are they totally rejected? No. When will they be revisited uh, so by God? We'll, we'll try to answer that question. Uh, and the issue is picked up in Romans chapter 3, the first three verses. Don't turn there. We're going to have enough to turn to, but I'm going to read that to you. What advantage then has the Jew, or what profit is 
there of circumcision, much in every way, chiefly because that were unto them were committed the oracles of God. Now, the oracles of God is the whole word of God. And it goes on. So the problem, that comes the problem of how the Gentiles are related to the Jews. If circumcision is of no value without faith, then what advantage has the Jews? What benefit is circumcision? And if God become, and the, and the question came up, if God couldn't keep his promises to Israel, not, I'll reward that. If God did not keep his promises to Israel, he could do anything he wanted to. Don't misunderstand me. And they were rejected and set aside. Can he keep his promises to the church? And can he keep his promises to us as individuals? And Paul begins his answer with a personal testimony about his superhuman love for his physical people, Israel. Now, I want to go slow with this because a question that comes up here is the most, I won't say profound, the most heart-wrenched, deep, sincere question, I think, in the, in the Bible that an individual can ask, not what God can ask. But in verse 1 of Romans 9, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. Now remember, I lie, I do not lie. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. In, in other words, Paul is what he's about to say is telling the truth. That I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart for his people. Now the question comes up is how much sorrow and, and regret do you have for your people that they might be saved. Now read verse 3 right closely. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brother, now his brother is Israel, my kinsmen according to the flesh, that they might be, the question is that they might be saved. Now what Paul is saying here, I would give up my salvation if my brother in Israel could be saved. Now think about that for a moment. Is anybody, Bobby, could you give up your salvation for me? Don't answer that, don't answer that, no. <laughs> but now in the Greek, if you go to the Greek and what it says, Paul says, this is a, a proof positive context or statement of eternal security. And it's in, it's in an imperfect tense. And what it says, if I could, I would give up my salvation for my brethren, the Jews, but I know I can't. And he, but his statement that he made is sincere. Now, can you, th I'm going to ask you a question. Don't answer it. I just asked Bobby. He won't, she won't tell me. Would anybody give up their salvation for somebody else? Tough question. But Paul said, I would do it if I could. Then in verse 4, who are the Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenant and the promise and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises? Now, Ephesians chapter 2, you can go there sometime and read 11 and 12, I believe. It says, talking about the Gentiles, they are without the covenant, the promises, the, uh, the, pro the adoption, and on it goes, and we are without hope. But as it goes on, in verse 5, who are the fathers of whom has concealed the flesh Christ came? Who is God over all? Blessed forever. Amen. In other words, what he said, Israel has a lot to offer. A lot came from Israel. Now what we want to talk about shortly 
is verse 4, and we're going to pick out some items here. But I'll read verse 6. Now, maybe I should go, let's do something else, and, and talk about replacement theology and all millennialism. What is, and this is a little historical back, background, what is covenant theology? Now, I heard someone say the other day, I explained that to them a little bit, they said, who would believe that stuff? Well, it's widely taught, not in a fundamental Bible teaching, solid church, but it is widely taught, and I'll give you just briefly the background and explain to you where it came from, that when, when Israel rejected their Messiah, that forfeited all the promises that God gave Israel, and it was given to the church. And the church is responsible for fulfilling and, and receiving those promises. Now, it doesn't say any, these replacement theolo theology guys doesn't say anything about the judgments that's coming to Israel, that the church received those too. So what is replacement theology? The man most responsible for changing the way the church interpreted prophet, prophecy was Origen. And he was a, a leading teacher of theology and philo philosophy in an influential school of Alexander Egypt at the beginning of the 3rd century. He desired to harmonize the New Testament with the philosophy of Plato, and he powerfully introduced and taught and spread the allegoric method of interpreting the Scripture. Now, the allegoric method is, it don't mean what it says. You can make it say anything you want to. Uh, and he was, he was responsible for spreading that viewpoint. And his method of allegorically scripture interpretation was soon adopted throughout the church and prevailed throughout the Middle Ages. Church theologians began to develop the idea that the Israelites had permanently forfeited all their covenants by rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. This view taught that those covenants now belong to the church, and that is only true Israel, now and forever. In other words, the true, true church, to their viewpoint, right now and forever, or the true, true Israelites, is the church. Now, we, what we want to do, and we may not have time to get into all that, we want to get the background laid and then go back and see what the Bible says. And the only way they can make that work is allegorically teaching the Scripture. It, don't, it does not mean what it says. And this view also taught that Jews will never again have any future as a divinely chosen people and that the Messiah will never establish his messianic kingdom on earth that was promised to them. By the time of Augustine, 354 to 425 AD, the famous bishop of Hippo, Origen's method of interpretation dominated the Christian scene. It was Augustine that systemized the allegorically based teaching into a theology that would dominate the church for over 1,000 years. Even the reformers under Martin Luther failed to challenge his allegorically based undefined eschatology. Constantine conversion called the Edict of Tolerance in the 5th century of the church believe it was sole possession, the professor of possession of Israel's covenant promises. Now, closely related to that, now we believe in a pre-millennial, God's program, pre-millennial believe that God teaches that God will come back at the end of the tribulation and set up his kingdom and will last for a thousand years. Well, all millennialism teaches that there is no millennium. Now, people say, 
Nobody believes that stuff. Yes, they do. When I lived in Independence for years, I lived very close to a guy that believed this. He would come over about three three days a week and teach, try to teach this very teaching. And he believes that we are living in the kingdom age. Oh, he's dead and gone now. But Christ rules in our heart. Now, he should rule in our heart. But he was talking about the kingdom age. He will rule and reign in our heart for a thousand years. I told him many times, I said, if this is the kingdom age, somebody gave Satan too long of a chain. He is way got way too much authority. And amillennialism does not believe that Christ will personally reign on the earth for a literal thousand years. They defined an allegorically millennium extending from his resurrection from the tomb to the time of his second coming on the clouds at the end of this age. Since this has already lasted 2,000 years, it has to be allegoric. And the central teaching is there is no future reign of Christ on the earth from Jerusalem. The second coming will occur at the end of history. There will be one general resurrection of both believers and non-believers at the end of the millennium, at the end of time, not the millennium, at the end of time. And this same time, the life judgment of all mankind will take place. The believers will be given eternal life, and the non-believers will be condemned to eternal judgment. In other words, at some point in the far future, there's going to be one, res- one general resurrection, and the, they're both going to be separated. The believers will go into heaven, the non-believers will go into hell. Now, the Bible very clearly teaches in two resurrections, right? The first and the second. Now, just a side note, the first resurrection is not an event, it's a category. It happens in four stages. Jesus is already resurrected from the dead, right? The next, and he fulfilled the Feast of First Fruits, and I don't want to get into that, we certainly don't have time for the Feast of Israel. There's another resurrection coming called the rapture of the church, and we believe in a pre-trib rapture. That the rapture is the next thing on God's prophetic program. A lot of people will teach that the first resurrection, that at the rapture, the Old Testament saints will be raised with the church age saints. According to the Bible, that is an impossibility. It says the dead in Christ shall rise first. How do we get in Christ? By the baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? We are sealed and baptized into the body of Christ. The Old Testament saints never had that opportunity. They were saved. The Holy Spirit was here, but not as the indwelling Holy Spirit. So the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints, according to Daniel 12, 2 and 3, and Revelation 12, uh, chapter, uh, Revelation chapter uh, 20, verse 6, that they will be raised at the end of the tribulation. So there's four stages of the first resurrection, not one general resurrection. And then at the end of the millennial, there's another resurrection, the second resurrection, and that's when all, believe, all non-believers will be resurrected and cast into hell. Now, there's one other verse that I want to get into, and I want to pick out something else to go to. Now, in verse 6, and this is probably where they get some of their so-called information from. Not as though the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. That's a t- that's what what is he talking about? If you're not of Israel, you're not Israel, or all that is of Israel is not Israel. Two pro- uh, two uh, views to go. Ishmael was born of who? Abraham, right? 
is he a Jew? Is he a part of Israel? No. Now, the three groups of people that came from Abraham, the physical descendant, the physical Jew, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Reuben, and right on down the line. There's a spiritual of the uh, physical, and that's always called the remnant. Turn, look over at chapter 11, just a moment, and verse 5. And then at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. In other words, there's always been a believing remnant of the descendants of Abraham. Now, in today, if you're a believing remnant from the Jews, what do you call the body of Christ? You are part of the church. That's all. That's called the remnant. They all, there's always been a believing remnant from the physical descendant. Number three, there's a spiritual that's non-physical. That's the church. Who? Where did Jesus come from? The lineage of Abraham, right? Right on down through Solomon, and right on down to Jake or to Mary. Of course, that was through Nathan. But there's three groups of people that came from Abraham. The physical descendant, the spiritual of the physical, and the spiritual that's non-physical. Now, we want to go back and pick up some things of who... Now, this is what these people believe. They do not believe Israel, this, this little nation over in the Middle East that's no bigger than the state of New Jersey, has no more uh, prophetic program uh, or, this, or destiny in God's program. I don't know if you heard the news Friday or not. Israel warned Iran that their nuclear weapons was getting very, uh, or program was getting very, very close to the red line. Now, Israel cannot afford to let Iran have a nuclear weapon. Uh, Iran's wanting nuclear weapons to destroy Israel. All the Muslims wants to destroy Israel. This little nation over here, according to the Kingdom Now people, don't matter what, what they do. Why does Islam want to destroy Israel? Well, Allah, now this is Islamic teaching, has told their imams, now imam is a spiritual leader, leader that there's, there's 12 of them. 11 of them have been come on board, has been known. And they teach that if you destroy Israel and put the world in a state of chaos, that will bring in the 12th imam. The 12th imam is the Messiah. And Jesus will come with him. And Jesus is no higher up than Mohammed. And Jesus will be a Muslim, and they will convert the world to Islam. That's the reason Israel, or Iran, and the Muslims want to destroy Israel, to usher in their 12th imam. Now, we know that's not going to happen. But let's pick out one, uh, one of the conditions. In verse 4, it says, who the covenants were given to. Now, who or what is a covenant? There's two types of covenant. A conditional and an unconditional. The conditional co covenant is made by two parties 
and they both are responsible for fulfilling of the conditions that the, that the covenant was made. If one breaks the covenant, then the covenant becomes becomes unobtainable, and neither side is responsible for it. But an unconditional covenant is one one side is responsible for fulfilling the the conditions of that covenant. Now the Abrahamic covenant. Now there's five major covenants given to Israel: the Abrahamic, Mosaic, the Land Covenant, the, the Davidic Covenant, and the New Covenant. Four of those are not are unconditional. All the conditional covenant is the Mosaic covenant. So what we're going to talk about here is the Abrahamic covenant, and see exactly what God told Israel. Now remember when you go and we're going to study this. Remember what the subject is. The Israel is no longer in God's prophetic program. Israel over in the Middle East right now is not in prophecy. Turn to Genesis chapter twelve. And the first three verses, of uh, four, three verses, is the uh, that's the condition of the covenant. That that is really the Abrahamic covenant. And it says, "I'll make thee a great nation." That's happened. I will bless thee. That's happened. Now there's four. A seven I will. Four of them direct, and and three of them is implied. I I will. Make thy name great. That's happened. I will bless them. Now, this is where we need, the United States needs to understand something. I will bless them that bless thee. And I will curse them that curse thee. Now, you go back and study history. Britain is, is the, the latest example, maybe, of what have you done? Have you blessed Israel? Or have you cursed Israel? Now, we don't have to agree with Israel's policies. They're in unbelief right now. They're set aside. They're not in, in God's program right now. They're going to be. But we better not curse Israel and per, per, uh, persecute them because they are Israel. And God has a plan for them. And in these, all the families of the earth will be blessed, and that's through Jesus Christ. Now, that's the, the broad outline of the Abrahamic covenant. But it's confirmed and ratified in Genesis 15. Now, this is an interesting subject. That thing, that thing is blowing my pages to where I may be reading the wrong verses. And we'll pick it up in verse 1 of 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, for I am thy shield and thy exceedingly great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what thou, what thou shalt give me, sin I go childless, and the steward of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now what God was telling him, you're going to have a great descendants come from your body. And Abraham was, what, 79 years old, I believe, at this point. And, and uh, Sarah was even older. And Sarah had laughed at him a few times before for telling him that he was going to have a child. And his descendants would be great. And in verse 3, And Abram said, Behold, to me thou shalt give no seed, and though one born in thy house is mine heir. 
And behold, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, There shall not be down there. And he's talking about Eliezer. And by the way, his name means God is my helper, i.e. the comforter. And you can make a real big study on that and the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to do that. In verse 5, And he brought me forth abroad and said, Look down toward heaven and tell the stars that you will be able to number them, and said to them, So shall your seed be. In other words, his seed is going to be unnumbered. You can't number them. And, he, and Abram, Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But he goes on, as time goes on a little bit, he said, well, God, I know you said that, but how can I be sure? How can I be sure that I'm going to have a child? A lot of these descendants is going to be mine. And God said, okay, verse 8, and he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I will sit here? And he said to me, take me a heifer, of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle of, and a young pigeon. Now this sounds like uh, going to a doctor for witchcraft or something, other than uh, doing what the Lord said. And he and he took them up, and these divided them into the mist. In other words, he cut them in two. Laid them one side or the other, except the pigeons. He did not cut those in two, because that was poor man's sacrifice in the temple. And he placed them one against the other, but the birds divided he not. In other words, the pigeon he didn't divide. And then the fowls came down upon the carcass, and Abraham drew them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell on him. Now, remember, this covenant is unconditional. It depends on the one that made it to fulfill it. Now, what condition is Abram in right now? He's asleep, right? In, in, a, in a full sleep. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that their seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them for 400 years. Now that's in Egypt. And when they come back, and also that nation whom they shall serve, I will judge, and after they shall come out with great substance. That happened. And they shall go to my fathers in peace, uh, in, in peace, that shall be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation there shall come hither again, and for iniquity of Amorites is not yet full. In other words, God can't do something until something else happens. In this case, the Amorites, their iniquity hadn't been fulfilled. So they have to run their course before God will bring his children back. And it came to pass when the sun went down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed through these pieces. What is going on here? Let's get uh, a little more context on that, what a covenant is. Go to Jeremiah chapter 34. Now remember, God said, I'm going to give you this land forever, right? What does replacement theology teach? They don't get anything. Now who are, you, who are we going to believe? The Bible? Or these uh, cults? Jeremiah chapter 34 and verses uh, 18 and 20. Now this is what happens. Now let, oh, let me explain something else. This is called the blood covenant. Now that's between two people. Now what they would do when they made an agreement against each other uh, or between each other, they would cut an animal in two, 
and hold hands and walk between it, citing the, the agreements to the covenant. And if one of them broke the covenant, and we're going to pick it up in Jeremiah 34, verse 18. And I will give the men that have trespassed by covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant, which have made before me when they cut the half in twain and passed between the parts thereof. The princes of Judah and the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs and the priests and all the people of the land which passed between the parts of the cave, I will give them into the hands of their enemies, into the hands of the seek their life, and their dead bodies shall be for meat to the fowls in heaven and the beasts of the earth. In other words, what he was saying, if you guys break the covenant, takes two, you're going to wind up, the one that breaks it, exactly like these animals are, cut in half and your blood would be poured out on the ground. Now, what God was doing, he was, it says, it was dark, Adam was in deep sleep, and a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between the pieces. Two items, right? Remember when the pillar of fire and, and the night and the, and the light by day, the Shekinah glory, or Shekinah glory, that's the presence of God. Remember on Mount Sinai when, when the law was given, it looked like a furnace? This is God passing through these pieces himself. And he could swear to no one greater than himself. And he was swearing to himself that Israel would receive the land. Then in verse 19, 20, and 21, or verse 18, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Adam, saying, Unto thy seed I have given this land from the river Egypt unto the great river, river Euphrates. Now that takes in... Jerusalem, or Israel, Jordan, Syria, Iran, uh, Iraq, excuse me, Iraq, parts of Saudi Arabia, and the Sinai. Now, has, has Israel ever gotten that land yet? No. Are they going to get it? The answer is yes, but when? Now, these other questions comes up, and we're all running out of time. When did... God set Israel aside. Now, in in the Leviticus 25, in Leviticus 26, is the Mosaic Covenant. And it says, I will do this if you will do this. Now, these five I wills, I'll do this, I'll do this I'll, five times. Five of them is blessings and five of them are judgments. Now, that's called the five cycles of discipline. For Israel now, it's not for the church. If Israel was disobedient to God through the first cycle, the second cycle, or the third cycle, they repented, God would wipe the slate clean and start over. Israel had has passed through the five cycles of discipline twice in their history. Once by the Babylonians when they came in and, and uh, took them captivity for seven years. Why did they take them captivity for seven years? They violated the sabbatical year. What is a sabbatical year? If I was telling you I was going to be gone for a week, how long is that? Seven days, right? That's not the case in Israel. They got a week of days, a week of weeks, a week of months, and a week of years, divisible of seven. So you've got to determine the context. You've got to determine what you're talking about. So Israel was in the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Leviticus 25 tells you that there was to work six years, and on the seventh year, the land would lay fallow, be no word. They did not keep any of them. So that was the first cycle of discipline. The second cycle, they came back into the land, 
550 years, done reasonably well, but disobedient again. And then along came the Romans in 70 AD and took them into captivity all through the land. Now you can find this in Deuteronomy and God prophesied they'd be taken into by a nation, Babylon. They'd be scattered among the nations, plural, everybody. And that lasted for almost 2,000 years. When did God bring them back? Turn to Ezekiel. I wanted to go through the Valley of the Dry Bones, but we're not going to have time. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. And we'll pick it up about verse uh, 19. And I will scatter them among the heathen. Now heathen, the ethnos is the word. It means nations or Gentiles. It means either word. And I will scatter them among the heathen, and they will disperse throughout the countries according to their way and according to their doings, I will judge them. Then they entered into the heathen, whether they went, they profaned my holy name, and they said to them, these are the people of the Lord that are going out of the land. Why did they, or how did they profane God's name? They was out of the land. They should be in the land. God gave them the land. And they should be there. But because of disobedience, they were out of the land. So that was profaning God's name. In verse 21, but I had pity. Now, why did he bring them back? I had pity for who? The nation of Israel? No. He says, I had pity for my holy namesake, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen whither they went. Therefore, says the Lord God of Israel, Therefore, let me start over. Therefore, say unto the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations, whither they went. And I will sanctify my great name, which have profaned among the heathen, whether they have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, and the Lord God shall know I have sanctified in their eyes. And I will take them of among the heathen and gather you out of all the countries and bring back you into your own land. When did that happen? As a few of us here can remember that. May the 14th, 1948. I know me and Bobby can remember it. Maybe another or two. I know you teenagers can. But May the 14th, 1948 is when they came back into the land. In the Valley of the Dry Bones said they came back with no breath left in them. Now, breath is the ruah. The breath is the same word as spirit or wind. They came back in unbelief. What shape is Israel in right now? In unbelief. When are they going to be brought to their senses? Well, let's just leave that. It's, it's, this next section is going to get us beyond where we want to go. Uh, when, were the, when were they hidden? The things was hidden from their eyes at the triumphal entry. Uh, one, one other thing, and I, this is a so what in it. Now, I didn't cover near what I wanted to. Look over in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Well, they've taken Romans out of the Bible. Eleven twenty-five. If I can find it again. Okay. 
For I would not, brethren, that you'd be ignorant. Now, ignorant doesn't mean they're dumb. It's, the word is mysterion, and it means a, a, a something that wasn't revealed up until this time. And it says, I would not, brethren, that you'd be ignorant for this mystery. What is the mystery? Lest you be wise in your own conceit that blindness. Now, blindness happened. Hold your place here just briefly and go to Luke 19. Now, everybody knows the story of the triumphal entry when when Jesus got a colt, rolled over the hill into into Jerusalem, and the Pharisees, there's a lesson here, but we do not have time. In verse 42, uh, verse 41, and when he came near the city, beheld, and he wept over it. Why did he weep? Because he knew it had been rejected. They was coming into judgment. Saying, if there hath known even thou at least in this thy day. That's the very day that they were blinded. In, in verse 44, or in the rest of verse 42, their day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now are hidden from thine eyes. Now, why are they hidden? Verse 44, in the last sentence, because you knew not the time of my visitation. God held them responsible, the spiritual leaders responsible for the very day that Jesus would present himself as the Messiah. Remember in the Gospels when Jesus would do a miracle or heal somebody or something, they'd try to make him king, and he'd slip out through the crowd and say, my time has not yet come. I don't think he's talking about the cross. His ultimate goal was the cross, and he knew that. But I think he was talking about the day that they would present him king of Israel. And and, and, uh, back in uh, Luke, in verse uh, 16, I think it is, not, not verse 16, verse uh, 20, 31. Anyway, he said, if it's stones, if you don't proclaim me, the stones will cry out and, and say who I am. But they was, things was hidden from them on that very day. Now, what day was that? Now, I'm going to give you a number. Don't try to figure it out. Don't go there. It's, it's a whole study in itself. It's the 173,880th day. From what? You've got to have a beginning point to get to that point. Now, that's a whole study. That's a two-week study within itself. But God had held him responsible for the very day that he would present himself as the Messiah, the Prince. But Jesus said in, in uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 25, in, in the last part, well, I'll read it all. Because I should not, brother, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own conceit, that blindness in part, now it's only a partial blindness that they're in right now, has happened to Israel for how long? Until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. What is the fullness of the Gentiles? Now this is a so what? There's a number that makes up the completion of the church. We don't know what it is. God knows what it is. When that number is complete, we're out of here. Now, I think Satan knows there is a number. He doesn't know what the number is. I think God has kept him in shock for these 2,000 years, and Satan knows there's a number, and he believes that the next convert out there somewhere could be the last one, and his days is numbered. So what he's trying to do is keep us Christians as being a witness that we should be to bring people to the Lord. 
And if, if we're not a witness, then that last person can't be saved, and he's got more time left. So we should be the witness. We don't know. When we bring that last person, to the, that person that we bring to the Lord, that may be the last one. Then we're out of here. We're gone. So Satan doesn't want us to be a witness. Uh, are we a witness that we should be? No. <laughs> I hate to say that. Uh, there's, there's a lot more that we could do and should do. But uh, just remember, the 173,880th day. We gotta, we, to get that, you've got to go from, start from somewhere and count down. Let's pray.